Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. You're listening to My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. I recently attended the Derrida Today conference that was held at Fordham University in New York City. It reminded me of finishing Derrida's biography recently by Benoit Peters, which, in between the gossip and some of the discussion of Derrida's career, I did actually find quite moving. One of the consistent themes in Derrida's work, as many of you probably already know, is the status of the secret. And Derrida seems to take this anti-Gnostic position that the secret is that there is no secret, but there's this gaping hole in the biography. For those who have seen the Derrida movie, there's a very funny scene where he's asked by the interviewer what he wishes that Hegel or Heidegger had written about. And then his response is, their love life. And of course he says, I don't mean a Heidegger porno, but because their love life is what they were most scared to confront, what they hid in their philosophy. And so it's interesting that in Derrida's biography, the gaping hole is his own love life. Without claiming to understand or without passing judgment, It's well known that Derrida had a very long-term relationship with a woman named Sylvain Agachinsky, a popular feminist philosopher in France who's married to the former prime minister, Lionel Jospin, and who, with Derrida, had a child named Danielle Agachinsky, not Danielle Derrida. Of course, the birth of this child is something that Derrida tried to keep secret from his extended family for some time until his wife convinced him to publicly acknowledge his birth. But outside of the postcard, uh, specifically the envoi portion of the postcard, Derrida doesn't really address his love life, and he never does so in an explicit or obvious way, though perhaps the postcard is obvious, or at least not apparent. Now I'm not thinking about this just to gossip, but rather because a philosopher who claims that the only secret is that there is no secret still has something locked away, something that he won't talk about in public. And perhaps there's very good reasons for that. Perhaps there are things that can't be submitted to public reason that will always remain locked up. People at the conference got at this a little bit through the screening of Love in the Post, which is a attempt to film uh, the spirit of the postcards, envoi. But even there, people were more concerned with talking about animals or with the consciousness of rocks or, as Martin Hoglund did, defending a kind of secular faith than with talking about this thing that is locked up, this thing that is most interior to our lives, the question of love. Maybe it's because it's too easy to fall into cliché or people worry about coming across as creepy. What would happen to Derrida in the age of Twitter? For even if you find his work helpful, is there not some problem in the way that he related to 
Sylvain or his other lovers? Was he not bound to failure? And why the silence in the face of such a failure? These are just some things that I was thinking about at the conference, but that pass over in a kind of silence usually. And the silence that is going to be carried over in today's episode. As I'm still getting settled into my new house, and as I am finishing up my summer teaching and just finished the final edits on Introduction to Non-Marxism by Francois Laruelle, I'm falling behind in getting the editing for the podcast done. So today's just going to be a mini episode. Uh, it's going to be the audio of my talk at the Derrida Today conference, which focused on Laruelle's early reading of Derrida, uh, a reading that I think deserves to be looked at in the light of recent materialist readings of Derrida. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, your comments are welcome on the Tumblr page. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm Anthony Paul Smith. Um, just to uh, put this in a little bit of perspective, I'm going to do that annoying thing where I, I say this paper's you know, notes towards something in progress. And I'm also doing the annoying thing where I admit that it's annoying. So, uh, yeah. It's, um, but this this is uh, kind of pro- part of a project uh, where I'm trying to introduce the work of Francois Laruelle. Um, and I wanted to include in this this text I'm writing um, a little bit about his development and his, uh, his what I'm calling his apprenticeship um, period, where he wasn't doing uh, his mature project, what, what he calls non-philosophy. Um, or non-standard philosophy. Both of these are metaphors he borrows from the sciences. So non-Euclidean geometry is the one, and then um, non-standard model and physics is the other. Um, so I I want to say that uh, um, uh, in general, I, I feel like this is uh, not incredibly ambitious paper, um, but I hope it says something. Uh, if you're interested in some of the things that are touched on in the paper, um, I have a text out called A Non-Philosophical Theory of Nature, Ecologies of Thought, which touches on some of uh, Laura Wells' philosophy of science, um, and I use it then to engage with uh, the science of ecology. Um, but what I'm trying to do here is, is sort of touch on uh, a few things I think Laura Wells does that it's interesting um, in distinction to some of the other um, materialist readings of, of deconstruction um, that I think have certain... Uh, that raise certain problems of methodology. So why why this science rather than the other? Um, what about science with a capital S? Uh, so on and so forth. So, okay, um, that annoying preface out of the way. Um, when readers come across the work of Francois Laruelle, they often remark on the difficulty of his texts. Uh, indeed, in an interview at the end of his fourth book, and I'm just going to put these in English, um, The Decline of Writing, conducted with the editors Nancy Kaufman, Derrida, Le Coulibar, uh, whose series Philosophie en Effet it had appeared in, Jean-Luc Nancy, um, hardly, I think it's safe to say, the paragon of philosophical clarity, begins his remarks to Laruelle with, and I quote, My question will be one of readability. First of all, from the most superficial point of view, your text is very difficult to read. Okay, so I can't help but think, in the light of a very discouraging review by Graham Harmon, um, you know, the more things change. 
Laurel's response, well, to affirm the difficulty as a way of escaping the philosophical tribunal. Uh, I quote, my response will be one of illegibility, a way of throwing back your question, displacing it. I only displace it as an interrogation in order to get a better position on it. So my own early undergraduate education was something akin to Derrida's own attempt to learn Hebrew so that he could read the scriptures without understanding. Um, in my freshman philosophy of religion course, I was given the task of presenting on Derrida's essay, Difference, and instead of admitting my failure, complete failure, to understand, uh, I embarked on a number of years of attempting to read Derrida alongside my slightly more traditional training. Now, I can't make claims to any kind of special acumen, but in the midst of my lack of understanding was something like an education. And so I've never been very sympathetic to complaints about the readability of Laruel's text. And I think there's actually something symptomatic going on there. So you may well imagine my surprise to find Nancy's question, again, from someone who writes the way that Nancy does, but my surprise even more at the protestations of Derrida during a discussion in 1988. Um, there, responding to a paper in which Laruel discussed the way in which philosophy practices a kind of terror, Derrida begins by first saying that he is tempted to say that Laruel was giving an account of what he was subjecting the audience to. That is, terror. Um, and then goes on to express his frustration saying, and I'm, quote, I'm quoting again, what makes it difficult to, along, to go along with the movement I would like to accompany you in is that it sometimes seems to me to consist in you carrying out a violent shuffling of the cards in a game whose rules are known to you alone. Um, Laruel's response is interesting, saying to Derrida, and I quote again, your questions have a very particular style, which I found highly interesting, that of retortion. You're, and he's now like putting in quotes, you're just like those you criticize. You're doing just what you claim to abhor. You taught me in your work that one should be wary of retortion. So I would like to suggest that to the extent that you are making a certain use of retortion, and this is, um, and this is something that recurred throughout, right up to the end via the, accusi the accusation of socio-philosophical war, then it is necessarily the case that some of your ob objections in a certain way um, uh, mean precisely the opposite of what I said." End quote. Reading this confrontational exchange with the elder philosopher Derrida, who Laruel credits in another exchange with teaching him much, the former demanding that Laruel answer for his misbehavior, I, I could not help but think of the ubiquitous anti-drugs commercial from my childhood. Um, the commercial, which some of you may know, and it's on YouTube, it's preserved for the sake of nostalgia there, um, features a father uh, with a great mustache confronting his teenage son with a generic box of drugs and demanding, who taught you how to do this stuff? And the son bursts out, you all right, I learned it from watching you. Deconstruction horrified the philosophical world because it was able to tease out structures and traces that philosophy felt were better left unknown, but deconstruction is in turn horrified when a science of philosophy, which is what Laruel calls his work, claims to make it too understandable. Okay, so that may be a controversial claim, but certainly Laruel's response, both in what I quoted and in the rest of uh, the, the exchange, remains frustrating, and he seems almost to revel in refusing to surrender an inch to Derrida during this dis uh, discussion. While I appreciate this refusal, um, constituting as it does a struggle against philosophy's resistance to non-philosophy, I recognize that for those who meet Laruel's work with confusion and agitation, a number of questions still remain. What is the basis of the claims he makes? What about that basis marks non-philosophy out from standard philosophical discourse and practice? And what difference does it make for the usual concerns of philosophy? 
The purpose of this paper is partly to help others who may be interested in Laruel gain some purchase on his project by performing a kind of historical overview of the development of non-philosophy, locating his apprenticeship, albeit heretical, in deconstruction. Laruel's project has consistently been confused with an anti-philosophy or a polemic against philosophy when he has consistently declared that he is using philosophy in ways that are foreign to philosophy as such. He has given himself license, and it is only himself that can give this license, uh, to cast philosophical concepts in a non-philosophical register. So this paper is less about Derrida as such, though in good Derridian fashion is perhaps about Derrida today, even as, even as it is more concerned with Laruel yesterday, specifically as he read Derrida yesterday. But part of what I hope to show in the short time we have here is that Laruel was one of the most original and bold readers of Derrida's deconstruction well before deconstruction or Derrida's work had spawned annual conferences devoted to his work, and that it was the early, earlier philosophical apprenticeship that provided Laruel some of the means in which to carry out his non-standard philosophical project. Ultimately, selfishly perhaps, I am trying to make good on the delivery of a letter left for dead as I am unable to even touch on the breadth of Laruel's reading to say nothing of diving into its depth, I hope that the bits of this missive legible in my representation here entices some of you to engage with Laruel's work directly. Okay, so, to the, to the meat of the thing. If one is to trust the internet, uh, the emergence of so-called speculative realism marked the decline of deconstruction's erstwhile hegemony over, over the avant-garde of continental philosophy and those disciplines in dialogue with it. The one Derridian dialogue partner these resurgent realists and materialists were willing to entertain was Martin Hoglund and his 2008 Radical Atheism. Um, this text reopened a debate regarding the fittingness, and I emphasize the Darwinian notion here, but the fittingness of materialism to Derrida's deconstruction and vice versa. Hoglund, who of course is not the first to propose such a reading, maintains, as most of you are well aware, that the readings of Derrida that had become prevalent were missing what was vital in Derrida's thought. They were making pious and conservative a philosophy that stands in the tradition of the radical enlightenment and so firmly on uh, the side of an atheistic materialist philosophy. Being done with these readings, named by Hoglund variously as ethicists, religious, and so on, being done with those readings would allow Derrida's philosophy to enter into contemporary debates regarding materialism, realism, and the primacy of the sciences over a kind of overly sentimental ethics and religiosity. We have to become sober, Hogland's work suggests, and the path to sobriety follows the 12-step model requiring absolute abstinence. Here it requires a radical abstinence from religious discourses, a radical atheism that is done with the transcendent ideal guiding our political action. Now, in the light of the morning after, uh, our political and social engagement should be conditioned by our material and real finitude as revealed by the post-Darwinian biological sciences, amongst others. Now, my purpose here is not to quibble with Hoglund's reading of Derrida or to pick sides in the fight um, picked with other readers of Derrida, like John Caputo, though I will, as an aside, mark that Caputo's own cl clear commitments to rationalism and enlightenment values, uh, including the decline of re religion through education, um, is largely ignored by Hoglund. Um, I mean, essentially, Caputo's a total enlightenment rationalist, too. He just thinks, like, you've got to be a little nice to religious people. Um, I bring up, and I, I you know, I bring up this debate because, again, judging by the amount of heat produced in journals and on blogs, people took Hoglund's materialist reading as largely unprecedented. 
It is perhaps owing to the aforementioned difficulty of Laruel's writing and the vagaries of the Academico translation industry that his early work was largely ignored in the Anglophone reception of Derrida, to say nothing of his heretical tendencies that placed him as an outsider to the outsiders within the French system where, as we well know, Derrida's work struggled for an audience for a number of years. But not counting uh, Laruel's minor thesis, which presented a reading of Ravissant in a contemporary key, all of Laruel's early works provided a materialist and political, not strictly ethical, reading of deconstruction. This period, which he now names philosophy one of the five waves of his project, and he, he knows this is a joke, he knows it's ridiculous, but um, so he names these philosophy one of the five waves of his project, uh, was marked by an explosive productivity. Um, four books, uh, in English they'd be called Textual Machines, Deconstruction, and um, Writings Libido, um, which is what we're going to focus on for this paper. Nietzsche contra Heidegger, um, uh, Beyond the Power Principle, and The Decline of Writing. Um, all of these four books topped 300 pages and were published between the years 1976 and 1978, and they unfold his distinctive notion of materialism and his reading of deconstruction. While he says that this period of his work was marked by the principle of sufficient philosophy, which is his term for that philosophical faith that everything is philosophizable, a reader, or at least a sympathetic one, of these texts will see that Laruel's reading is marked by the same inventiveness and heretical moves as his later work. But of perhaps more interest here, these texts are marked by a materialist reading of deconstruction, rather than pitching deconstruction in what must be something like the equivalent of the Hundred Years' War, the lasting much longer, between a materialist radical atheism and a religiously determined philosophy, whether within deconstruction or the wider milieu of European and American philosophy. Soon we will look in more depth at Laruel's conception of materialism, but here let me state what, uh, what it allows Laruel to do. Deconstruction is shown to be both a material, a textual practice, though this isn't new, it was not, uh, even though it wasn't commented upon much in the 70s, as well as being conditioned by material concerns. Um, the meaning of writing's libido, uh, and we'll talk about that at the, the very end. This means that deconstruction is not treated as a philosophy sufficient to what Laruel calls the real, but as itself a player within the same imminent material field. How Laruel does this, I think, is ingenious. He reads Derrida uh, through a Deleuzian lens or with a Deleuzian supplement. After asking and setting aside a question he will go on to answer in Philosophies of Difference, the 1987 book, namely, what difference can there be between two, diff two systems of difference, that of Deleuze and that of Derrida, he says, I have only tried to make the series Delita Deruz resonate. Uh, these proper names function, function as libidinal intensities or burdens. They interpenetrate each other and impinge one upon the other, disappropriating one by the other to the, date, to the great displeasure, we hope, of the epi, uh, uh, sorry, my pronunciation, epi, uh, epigonal uh, appropriations and hasty oppositions. Uh, he goes on to say, repeating, uh, he, he makes this series resonate, repeating deconstruction within the signs of intensive production, reinscribing the affirmation of the eternal return within textuality, causing intensive difference in textual simulacrum to communicate within a reciprocal parody that sometimes displaces deconstruction and intensifies it right up to active and affirmative difference. End quote. What this means in practice is that he takes up Derrida's work and reads it through delusing concepts like the plane of imminence, desiring machines, and most importantly here, machinic materialism. 
So what exactly is this materialism at play in, in Laruel, and how is it different from the materialism, the materialism that figures like Hoglin have tried to align Derrida with? Well, like Deleuze and Guattari and Anti-Oedipus, which is obviously one of the main sources of Laruel's reading, even though it is only referenced in passing once, but like Anti-Oedipus, Laruel focuses on the way in which texts are shown to couple with other texts in deconstruction. That is, these texts function like machines that may be plugged into other machines, real machines, not figurative machines, allowing for flows to flow between them or for flows to be cut off from each other. Um, there is, and I'm, I'm simplifying here, but there is in Anti-Oedipus a threefold structure to machenic materialism. Machines and desire are the unilateral duality of production. Later in, in Deleuze's work, um, I see this as becoming uh, the actual and the virtual. And then the, these two are coupled with the anti-production of the full body without organs. Larwell mimics this in his reading of Derrida, casting a threefold structure to deconstruction that includes, and I'm quoting here, um, textual, uh, like normal textual, with an A, uh, which designates the linguistic representation of the text, the actual. Um, textual, with an E, uh, which is not a real word, which designates uh, the A signifying functions or machines of the text being the general textuality within its quote-unquote transcendental functioning, something akin to the virtual here. And then the A textual, which designates against perhaps what deconstruction wants or can do, the active indifference of the generality of writing in the text, indeed in the writing this machenic desire, uh, sorry, this machenic materialist scheme of writing allows Larwell then to trace the ways in which the desire of deconstruction flows in the production and deconstruction or a production of text. While this doesn't mark Derrida as post-Darwinian, it does do something far closer to the sciences than simply arguing for a metaphysical view that enlarges on the empirical claims of a particular science, something I think Hoglin is at least tempted by, if not subject to. That is, this machenic materialism is an actual local analysis and modeling of writing, a local analysis and modeling being what science actually does, I think. In modeling, or cloning in Laurel's later terminology and parodying in his earlier terminology at play here, in modeling deconstruction, he is, both, uh, he is able to both practice a non-idealist materialism and show how deconstruction is itself not an idealism. Though later on he's going to maybe think, well, maybe I was wrong in my youth, maybe it was, but... Set that aside for now. Um, he writes, and this is a, a long quote, um, the textuel, textuel, so he, he puts the A and the E next to each other here, meaning the productive element of writing, is not a new idealism of the text cut off from its outside text, but the deconstruction of this textual idealism. The production of general textuality effects by working on the text and the outside text within their co-belonging. A new concept and a new practice of reference, writing as referential, there you have what produces deconstruction, what reproduces ceaselessly with itself and within new text, that through which it finally detaches textuality, textuality as such from old metaphysical references, be they matter and the various practices that one claims it offers textuality so generously. The process of deconstruction produces or engenders its own reference, its reference, spelled here with an A um, that's unheard and only seen, uh, you know, like in difference which is why I said it in a bad French accent. Okay. This quote encapsulates the initial upshot, upshot of such a machenic materialism as, in, in, as it captures both that deconstruction is a practice and that this practice is a kind of reproduction. 
Throughout uh, textual machines, Larwell references re-words to describe deconstruction, ultimately claiming that deconstruction is marked by a meaning uh, it traces... Um, is marked by a meaning uh, that it traces in the practice of the eternal return of the, and he puts an ellipses here, other. That is, the textual material that deconstruction engages with is put into play through mimetic parody and generalized repetition, always casting the text along an arc that moves outside the text and back to it. In short, the material reading of deconstruction shows that it is an economy, a general economy that produces past the limits thought to be outlined by critical philosophy or structuralism. Okay, so to conclude. Ultimately, the structure of textual machine sets out the machinic materialist uh, reading of deconstruction by tracing its general economy, meaning it traces the practices of the returnal return of the other, or mimetic parody, and the general repetition already touched on. And the way in which um, uh, this is shown through the practice of writing um, shows that it escapes or outruns the very Newtonian signifier-signified structure. All of this, though, leads to his discussion of the libido, um, the, the writing's libido. As he says, our thesis posits the subordination of textual values to libidinal values. Here to conclude, we will look all too quickly at these libidinal values and the meaning this reading has for deconstruction and the way in which Larry projects uh, unfolded. Larwell says that deconstruction, in Derrida's work at least, is lacking a theory of power. And keep in mind, he's writing this in the 70s. So, um, Larwell begins to provide that theory of power in textual machines by asking, what does the deconstructor desire? That is, with this question, he moves from the general economy that his materialism sketches for him to the question of the subject that acts within that economy. By examining the uh, libido of writing that drives deconstruction, he asks, who deconstructs in a way that does not see any strict or real separation between libido and the writing down of that libido, between the act um, and the theory, uh, sorry, between um, the subject and the act, or the subject and the theory. That is, the subject um, that desires deconstruction is deconstructive. As his work develops, this imminence of the subject and the real, which is a general name for a lot of stuff, uh, seem the, uh, uh, requires that Laruelle leave behind the still metaphysical machinic materialism of his early work. But what deconstruction trains him in is the ways in which to escape the lockdown structures of philosophy, to escape even the antagonistic heart of machinic materialism, and instead begin to think from the primacy of the imminence of subject and the real. This is what moves him towards a democracy of thought. Uh, and he suspends that of, so you could also hear that as thought democracy, a, a thought that is democratic. One that no longer sees text as prison, uh, but sees text as materials, and the power with which to do things with those materials lies in the hands of the people. It's in this too-quick paper, too quick, too quick perhaps to seduce you, but hopefully, if nothing else, to allow for a little survival of this dead letter, this creative engagement by Laruelle with Derrida's deconstruction uh, to end by opening up, I'm going to leave you with the opening line of textual machines. Um, the text is not stuck with speaking. It's not left with speaking. But we can always say something. And I hope I've said something here today. So thank you very much. Well, I hope you found that interesting, and I hope it's the last bit of self-promotion I do on the show for a while. Coming up in a couple days, it'll be the Adam Kotzko interview. Uh, I think a few of you are looking forward to that. And remember, I'm still taking suggestions for people you think that I should interview. 
I will be heading to the UK and Ireland and Germany over the next uh, couple weeks, so keep that in mind when you suggest folks. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, whatever the world throws at you, remember, your name is your name.